I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars out front. I can tell you that the waitress is left-handed and the guy at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside, and at this altitude I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now how do I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Ridley Institute podcast. Uh, my name is Sam Forniker. I'm your host today. That was, of course, special guest Matt Damon reprising rather eloquently, I thought, his immortal lines from the 2002 classic, The Bourne Identity. Those lines touch on the issue at the heart of our episode today, namely the question, who am I? Uh, that question, what it means to ask who we are, how we even approach that question and what's at stake and how we respond, that cluster of questions lies at the heart of a wonderful book published last year by Brian Rosner, who's my guest today, and uh, who, by the way, deserves credit for highlighting this epic dramatic prose in his recent book with Crossway, How to Find Yourself, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer. It's that book that's going to be at the heart of our uh, discussion. Brian, uh, thanks for coming on, joining me on the podcast. Uh, thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure. So, Brian, you, you're that rare combination of scholar administrator uh, as both principal and senior lecturer in New Testament at Ridley College in uh, in Melbourne, Australia. Um, I'm aware that you've got a lot on your plate, so, so thanks very much for taking uh, the time to chat. Yes. Uh, yeah, thanks, Sam. Look, um, I remember Howard Marshall once said to me, a New Testament scholar in Aberdeen where I work, that uh, he's not a scholar who happens to be a Christian. He's a Christian who happens to be a scholar. So there's, I think if we're talking about identity, my, my primary identity is not academic or administrative, but something else. Brian, you've, um, well, let me, let me first say, you know, anybody who's grown up, come of age since 2009, which is the year that one writer's called the like button apocalypse, um, I think really needs to read your book. And in fact, even those of us who came of age before 2009 probably ought to read it. Uh, as well, how to find yourself, because it will drive home how swiftly the cultural complexities around identity have progressed over the last uh, decade or so. Maybe, maybe just to start, you might frame the book for for listeners. Can can you share with us, Brian, a little bit about your previous scholarship? I mean, this book is the tip of your intellectual iceberg, so it'd be great to have a glimpse beneath the waterline. And I know it's also kind of very a, a very personal um, uh, book for you. So, so could you comment on how? how you're approaching the issue of identity in the book. Sure. Thanks, Sam. Um, I, I think, as you said, it's a very personal topic. It's, it's not possible to write about personal identity impersonally or, or pretending objective neutrality or something. So the, the story for me started back in the uh, mid to late 90s uh, when I had a, a crisis of identity myself, so to speak. And, and being a Christian, I, I turned back to the Bible uh, to... Uh, give me some reassurance to uh, um, settle what was a really rocky patch in my life. And I found there um, a truth that uh, proved to be so so precious and helpful, and that was this idea of being known by God. Uh, Packer's classic, of course, Knowing God, everyone knows that one. And uh, so I tried to write the sequel. It hasn't quite hit the sales of, of, the, of the first uh, book. Uh, but even Packer in that book says that... Uh, foundational to us knowing God, and actually more important is, is this idea of being known by God intimately and personally. It, it, we're not talking about God's omniscience. He knows everyone at all times, all about us, uh, which is really, I guess, connected to his um, 
his omnipresence, the fact that he's everywhere, but, but his intimate personal knowledge of us as, as his children. Some languages distinguish two forms of knowing. Uh, unfortunately, English, well, Greek and Hebrew don't either. Uh, but something like German talks about, uh, I, I know someone, I know something, two different, two different words. So there's a personal journey there. And since then, it's gone on. I mean, people in my position, uh, Christian academics have this great privilege of chewing on the bone for many, many years. I tell students what you need to get a PhD is a very high boredom threshold. You think about the same thing over and over again. And, and just in, in, in sum, to put it really simply, um, there's been a revolution in identity and identity formation in our day, in the last several decades. Well, these days you're told to look only inward to find yourself. And uh, through a, a research with social science as well as theology and philosophy, I think there are other places to look. So there's nothing wrong with looking inward, of course. There are benefits to doing that. But the other places you need to look are around to your uh, relationships. We know ourselves by being known by other people, um, in this case by God, as well as close friends and family and so on. And then back and forth to your story, because our identities are stories. But as we might discuss, we live in shared stories. But then I think we're also uh, not just social beings, storytelling beings, but adoring beings. Uh, we look up. And that dimension puts uh, a different, uh, uh, frames those other two directions um, quite helpfully and I think uh, in, in profound and true ways. So it's a personal journey. It, it's my attempt to understand what on earth is happening in our world and to look back to the Bible to see what resources there are for offering a better way to find yourself and be yourself. It's interesting that you mentioned the Packer thing. Just as an aside, I, I don't know if you know um, uh, Lee, Lee Gatiss is... Um, wonderful guy. We sat down in Cambridge when I was doing my PhD and he said, so why are you doing the PhD? And I said, well, I was really impacted by John Stott's The Cross of Christ and, and Packers knowing God. And I thought I'd sort of try to write the next one. He said, don't we, don't we all? Um, but another, you know, another book I associated um, your writing with uh, was, uh, of course, Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. There's a lot of um, you know, for, for a, let's say a pastor kind of in, engaging with issues around identity, these are these are both uh, Carl's uh, uh, the sort of the two versions of, of uh, the rise and triumph and, 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 and your work um, really dovetail in a significant way. So what I mean is cr so crucial to, to your book is is a particular approach to identity formation, a particular kind of world and life view that scholars following Charles Taylor have come to call expressive individualism. Uh, can you just unpack that uh, term for us? How would you summarize its kind of major tenets? Yes. Uh, just quickly on Carl. Carl's an old friend of mine. We both taught at the University of Aberdeen in the 90s, and he very kindly wrote the foreword to my little book. Yeah, Carl's work um, is really about the roots, if you like, if I can uh, give you a little parable of uh, expressive individualism. Uh, my, my work is looking at the fruit of expressive individualism and another place to plant yourself. So um, that's how they relate. Um, so expressive individualism is this idea, as I mentioned earlier, that you need only to look inward to find yourself. And, and along with doing that, what you've got to do is reject all external authorities. So if you only look inward, you push away anyone else's view, especially institutional um, authorities. And, and when you decide who you are by doing that, 
you, you basically want everyone along with you to celebrate what you find. And, and the, it's the view that who you feel yourself to be on the inside and acting in accordance with that identity constitutes living authentically. So um, uh, Dr. Taylor Swift, um, and, and that's not a joke, so Dr. Taylor Swift got a, an honorary doctorate recently, and, and she's got this brilliant speech uh, for her acceptance, which hits the nail on the head. She, she basically said, we're so many things all the time, I know it can be overwhelming figuring out who you are. I have some good news. It's totally up to you. Now, that is expressive individualism in a nutshell. But then she goes on to say, which I think is extraordinary, she says, I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. So, so, so what we have there is, is this cruel irony in our day that it's never been more important to know who you are. But it's also never been more difficult to know who you are, because in a sense we're spoiled for choice. If, if it's if it's totally up to you, you can head in any direction you like. But for some reason, even uh, Dr. Swift uh, recognises the uh, the challenge and and perhaps uh, the difficulty of, of that approach. So fast, very fascinating for two reasons. I'll give you the sort of um, uh, cartoonish reason first. Uh, because I'm not sure if you've seen, there's an ad on, I think it may be for a bank or something. I clearly haven't paid close enough attention, but it's involving Taylor Swift. And she's she's one of many versions of Taylor Swift in the ad. There are sort of 20 Taylor Swifts uh, running around and, uh, you know, surprising people who can't believe they're running into her, which just strikes me as a as an, as an ironic kind of ad to run. Uh, well, that's so interesting because Madonna, who was a forerunner of this movement, had what her what she called her reinvention tour. So basically, the self-made self is 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 invented. You invent yourself, and uh, she had a poster which sounds very similar to the Swift advertisement, uh, where she had a, a kind of fuzzy op opaque picture of herself in the middle, and then around the outside, all of these different versions of herself. So the notion that our identities are fluid is, is another aspect of the movement. That's really, you know, that's really interesting. There are a, a number of other. Miley Cyrus, Lady Gaga, people who have made their career kind of reinventing themselves, putting icing on it to to make it seem as if it were sort of a great virtue. But but you're right. I mean, the, the, there's the there's the terrible irony that you know, looking inward to locate an enduring and authentic source of identity, uh, you know, which is expressive individualism. Um, yep. It's doomed to failure because the self-made self, and you say this in the book, it's really fragile. And um, so you suggest that this fragility is partly to do with the way that we privilege, tell me if I've got this right, it, partly to do with the way that we privilege some of our identity markers over others. So I'm thinking of chapter two here. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about how this kind of selective uh, emphasis on some identity markers over others works out? Yeah, so, so I should also say that there are some benefits, first off, to, to looking inward, uh, and the movement is probably um, a legitimate overreaction, I'd say, to what was seen to be the repressive 1950s, where um, the, the mechanical was, was prioritised over the organic and, and people felt stifled. That, that's the kind of stereotype of the 50s. Uh, yeah, so when we get to... Um, how it works out in practice, when you look inward, people tend to prioritise, as you say, just one aspect of their identities. Um, 
their gender, uh, their sexuality, they're the most, that's the kind of pointy end in our day, but it's much broader than that. So ethnicity plays into that. Um, uh, your, your material possessions, your, your marital status, uh, your uh, career, all of those things are an aspect of who we are. They're, they're kind of important when it comes to uh, forming and being yourself, but they're not all important. I, th I think that's the problem with the movement. And there's no doubt fragility has resulted. I mean, uh, when I grew up, the narrative identity formation script was pretty straightforward. You got your identity from your parents. During your adolescence, you either rejected it, accepted it, or pushed back a bit. And then you were, you were that person right through your life until midlife when you might have a crisis and buy a, a, a Harley Davidson or do something really silly. And then people died soon after they retired. And, and these days we've got a much longer lifespan. Um, you've got several careers. Um, all, uh, the um, life stage experts talk about uh, the possibility of a crisis at every stage. My favourite is the crisis which is not something you need ointment for, but it's a uh, it's it's where you you get to your thirties and you've climbed the ladder of success perhaps, and uh, you find out it's leaning against the wrong building. Um, cuspiety is another one where uh, you hit the cusp ages of 40, 50, 60, and so on, and you think, oh my goodness, what have I done with my life? So I think, uh, ironically, um, a supposed benefit, namely uh, opportunities and possibilities has another side to it. And it, it, it's just not leading to um, a, a stable and satisfying sense of self, which in the end is more important than, than anything else when it comes to identity formation. It, knowing who you are is a good thing, uh, but it's not leading to that. Yeah, that's very interesting. So the, I mean, the proof of the pudding is in the eating and that kind of on its, on its own, certainly sort of that solely looking inward view of expressive individualism, it just doesn't deliver the goods. Um, so it, it's, it, it's somewhere in the book, you, you, you equip readers with kind of a sort of diagnostic, uh, or at least a set of diagnostic tools that you think that Christians can apply to, to identity, to discern, you know, whether, whether we, we're, we're swimming in the cultural waters of expressive individualism, if I can put it that way, and you give us some tools to help us figure out whether we're gulping up a good bit of it down. Um, can, you, can you tell us about some of those kind of diagnostic tools? Is that the right way to characterize them? Yeah, I think so. Yes. So, so basically, as, as you'll know and the listeners will know, that there's a long tradition of talking about what's, what's known as the good life. It goes back to uh, the ancient world. And uh, so the question is, what does constitute the good life? And so I come up with, uh, in the book, five tests um, each starting with E, if you'll forgive the uh, alliteration. So the kind of existential test, how do we cope with suffering and disappointments? And apparently we're not coping well because there's, every, as everyone knows, there's a quite a dramatic rise in anxiety and depression in the West. Uh, the egotism test, how, how do we cope with, how do we deal with pride and envy? And uh, in that case, again, there's a rise of narcissism in our world. The ethics test, how do we deal with weak and lowly people? We're now an outrage culture, uh, dealing with enemies. And then finally, the enjoyment test, which is, again, extraordinarily ironic because expressive individualism says that its top priority is personal happiness. Uh, but the, the happiness movement, which is 
um, which is a thing. It, it's kind of based on positive psychology. And it's not as uh, facile as it sounds. It, it's, it's all about well-being and contentment. In, so happiness in the broadest and deepest sense. The happiness index is going down as they measure it. So people seem to be less happy, even though we're more affluent than ever. Um, and there are a number of explanations for that. Um, uh, the West is, in some sense, having a, um, a crisis of doubt and, and there are economic and other forces that cause people's lives to be disrupted and difficult. But I do think looking inward, this is my own view, looking inward to find yourself it is the cause of many of the problems that I've just gone through. And it, it's, uh, it, it's fair to say the self-made self is, is failing. A question that I had, because it's a, 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 an issue that's kind of dear to me, um, or not not dear to me, but but about which I think a good a good deal is just the relationship of um, of technology to to the question of identity identity formation. I'm not sure if you've seen. There's something called a document called the Ledger of Harms, which has been put out by I think it's the Center for Humane Technology, and and of course it lists all the sorts of things you would expect to see about social media, various types of um, deleterious effects associated with technology. Um, my concern sometimes, while I do have concerns, I'm, I'm a sort of, um, you know, I, I, I sympathize with people like Jacques Ellul who have, you know, slightly more pessimistic views about some of these things. He had no idea, of course. I mean, he wrote long ago. And, about, uh, right, right. About, that's the thing. You go back and they seem so appreciative. Now he's writing about things like microwaves and so on. But, um, the reason I mentioned the technology question, though, is that sometimes it seems like um, in in the church, as we're trying to figure out how to disciple people who are dealing with these deleterious effects, uh, I certainly, speaking for myself, am tempted to look for technical solutions. Um, we can identify a problem and then apply a technical solution to what might be a technical problem. And, and what I really appreciate about your work is that it raises some much more kind of provocative um, and, and I think useful spiritual questions, um, which are really head scratching questions from a, a discipleship standpoint. But, but so let me let me just ask Brian. As a, so as a New Testament theologian, you're you're obviously convinced the Bible speaks persuasively on the issue of identity. I'm with you. I'm convinced. But um, let me just put the question provocatively. You know, like a, a skeptical listener might. So, the Bible is uh, says a skeptical listener. A, you know, this millennia-old collection of, of documents written by people uh, from what we might call tribal cultures, so strong sense of communal solidarity, guilt-shame culture, et cetera, et cetera. What, such a person might want to know, what can such a book like the Bible have to say to this issue of personal identity? D does it directly address the question? Does it reframe the question? Um the, I, I suppose the bottom line, if the Bible is saying that we shouldn't just look inward, um, how is the Bible pr proposing, holding out, modeling an alternative for us? No, it's a great question. And uh, it's a question I had when I started on this uh, journey of looking at the Bible and its, um, um, its um, input on this. And, and you're right, this this. Identity, identity formation, be true to yourself, be yourself, you do you. All of this language is quite recent. And um, so you ask yourself, well, what, what can a collection of ancient documents say to this issue? But, but I think it's uncanny 
the emotional intelligence of the Bible and the, the, how, how well it aligns with what social scientists, anthropologists today are saying about human identity and, and uh, um, personal identity. So, so for example, um, the Bible says, think about yourself with sober judgment, Romans 12, 3. I mean, it's right there. It, it, the idea that uh, um, people in the Bible are not introspective, um, haven't thought reflectively about these questions proves to be wrong. You could put the word identity in many verses in the New Testament, and um, as a principal of a college, you're allowed to do that, so I'll do it. So in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, your identity is more than food and clothing. And uh, one of my favorite verses on identity is in Colossians 3, where, where Paul says, you're, you died and your identity is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ appears, who is your life story, uh, you will appear with him in glory. And I think that really sums up the Christian approach to personal identity uh, in, in, a, in a nutshell. So your identity, your identity is hidden with Christ in God. It's secure in him, which is just such a beautiful and reassuring truth. I mean, people suffering from Alzheimer's, people who are having some kind of crisis of identity can find comfort and, uh, uh, and solace in, in that truth. That, that, that John Swinton talks about our that the memories of God holds even when we lose our own memories, uh, our our identity is secure in Him. But then this big idea of our identity is formed by the story of Jesus Himself. So uh, there's this radio program I like listening to in Australia called The Year That Made Me. They get famous people on and they talk about you know. Um, the year that really formed my identity is when I won my sporting medal or uh, when I got my degree or when I got married. But sometimes they talk about much more profound and uh, even disturbing things, car accidents, my father dying before I was born. And I think this is true. We, we tend to, uh, as human beings, we the stories we live are not individual stories. They're, they're shared stories either our ethnicities, nationalities, or religions. And for the Christian, the fundamental story is the story of Jesus, which we identify with. So just think about that. You died, Paul says. So the year that made me was back in AD, AD 33. And, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's in one way an odd idea, but, but it's actually a, an incredibly profound and helpful one because what it means is... Um, the, my essence, my character, my identity was formed at the cross. And when you think about it, and, and the other side of that is the defining destiny of Jesus, uh, Christ, who is my life story, when he returns, I will be revealed as a true child of God, along with him being revealed as God's unique son of God. So I think that that's a really helpful way of thinking about our world. And and churches do this. They don't, some people don't realize, but you go to church to find out who you are and to confirm that identity and, and then to help you live in accordance with it. Baptism is an identifying with Christ's death and resurrection. The Lord's Supper is about uh, taking on board um, the life of Christ. Um, uh, when we read the Bible, we read the Bible not just to know God, but to know ourselves. And uh, it's not automatic. Paul goes on in Colossians 3 to say you've got to put on this new identity. And, uh, and, and it's all related to the cross, though, because that defining moment 
of sacrificial love is then to characterize my, my character and conduct in the present. So that there's, I think the Bible in short, and I could go on and on, <laughs> has an enormous number of resources. It doesn't treat identity in any, any one kind of passage. Here's the bit where it talks about identity, but it's everywhere. And once you realize that every page addresses questions of identity, uh, character, destiny, memory, all those kind of things that form us uh, as we really are. So several of those things are going to show up in sermons over the, <laughs> over the next few weeks uh, in many churches, I'm sure, at the, uh, the year that made my life, AD 33. Wow. All right. So okay, I, the, the, um, the, the, the social identity piece of that, I'd love to just pick up on that. What? So one of the things, if we want to have a, a, a solid identity, is to see that we are social animals. Um, we don't stand apart as isolated individuals. Um, Rowan Williams' great little book, Being Human, he talks about, you know, we're not, we're not billiard balls bouncing off of each other. Um, and I think there's an irony here. We, you know, we Christians, that is, tend to think of expressive individualism as a reaction to Christianity, and, and it is partly that, but... Uh, I, I've also begun to think of it as kind of a, a, a Christian heresy, really. So uh, T- Tim, Tim Ingold, I think, is kind of helpful here. He's an anthropologist who critiques these kind of dualist understandings of what it means to be uh, human dualisms, which tend to crop up in the great heresies. Uh, and he critiques them for what he calls a logic of inversion. So this, I think this idea is interesting. This idea, what Ingold calls the logic of inversion— this is expressive individualism, I think. It's this idea that what we see on the outside, fur, skin, whatever, is the least real, and it's just accidental. And what's on the inside, quote-unquote, is the most significant thing. So what makes me, me, therefore, is this kind of internal power that I contain. And that's that's expressive individualism, it seems to me. And um, so my point is, it's also a, a crass dualism, just like we find in the great ancient uh, heresies. Now, Ingold, sorry, this is a long-winded comment, but Ingold, as far as I know, is, is not a Christian. Um, but this concept of mesh work that he has, listeners who have listened to the podcast for some time may be familiar with this from the conversation that I had with Norman Weersba. Mesh work, this idea that we're not lone points on a path but that we are the very kind of nodding, knotting of multiple paths themselves. It seems to be a lot closer to the Bible's kind of relational vision of, of the person. So we're not walking around in metaphysical spacesuits. We're not billiard balls bumping into each other. We're, we, are, uh, we are more than, but at the same time, we are not less than our relations. So now to the question, um, Brian, how do you think we ought to be thinking as Christians about how our relations, our relationships, contribute to our identities? Yeah, it's a great question again. Um, the reality is, and, and social science is saying this, uh, the self is a self in relationship. And we know ourselves by being known than by being known by others uh, who are not ourselves. That, that's when, when you think about it, that's just obvious, isn't it? Um, you, when you get married, you find out a lot about yourself as your identity is reflected back to you. Something called the looking glass self, your identity, uh, you, you know yourself by seeing 
how you relate to others. There's a fascinating story. A guy called Christopher Knight wandered off into the wilderness up in Maine and uh, was on his own as a hermit for like 20 odd years, then got arrested stealing from cabins. And they asked him about his identity. And he said, well, I didn't need an identity. I was just on my own. And yes, I, I think that's that's absolutely right. We, we are beings in relationship. If you like an illustration, it, it's expressive individualism seems to think that we're soaring eagles uh, circling at a great height, looking at our prey, and you've got this uh, uh, vision of triumph and uh, conquest. Uh, but the reality is we're, we're honking geese. We're, we're kind of flying in formation. And when we do that, there's an uplift. And as any goose knows, it, it's the only way to fly. Now, when you come to the Bible, you, you've got what, speaking of heresy, you've got what uh, are heretical comments when it comes to expressive individualism. So, so think of one of the tenets of expressive individualism is that you belong to yourself. You reject all external authority. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you don't belong to yourself. You are not your own. That's, it's just a stunning um, claim. And the first thing to say, of course, is that, that there's an abuse of belonging to someone else. There, there are oppressive relationships and subjugation and all of that is to be um, opposed. But there, there are some contexts where belonging to someone else is a beautiful thing. So in, in, a, in, in, in a, an erotic love relationship, the Song of Songs puts it beautifully. It says, my beloved is mine and I am his. And, and love songs today say the same thing. And when you read on, of course, in 1 Corinthians, the next part of that verse is, you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. And, and that's the most uh, freeing and joyful thing, to know that I belong to someone else in because of this um, uh, eternal love. So I think um, what strikes at the heart of expressive individualism is first the recognition, as you say, that we're social animals, but then the step that's taken in the Bible is this wonderful uh, truth that uh, uh, we belong to someone else and, and that ends up being a, a, free, a freeing uh, truth. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, has a little book called um, uh, The Joy of Self-Forgetfulness. And uh, it, it kind of keys into that, that uh, in reality, there's, there's a great irony with, with personal identity. And interestingly, even Je Jesus himself put it this way. One of his favorite sayings in all four gospels is whoever finds themselves will lose themselves, but whoever loses themselves for my sake will find themselves. So extraordinary idea that uh, in the end, the way to have a, a stable, satisfying sense of self is, is not to look constantly inward and expect everyone to celebrate what I find, but it, it's to serve others in love and the Lord Jesus himself. And then the great paradox is that's the way to find yourself. How, Brian, do you see that connecting to the upward dimension? So not, not looking inward only, but looking upward, how, how, how do you see that upward dimension satisfying the kind of social, um, oh, hunger's not the right word, but that's the only word that's coming to mind, you know, um, the social element of our identities? So in the book, I defend um, this idea that we all have a religious impulse to look up. And uh, um, lots of uh, thinkers have said similar things about this desire for something beyond the satisfaction of our immediate needs for uh, food and, and shelter and clothing and uh, our, our, those desires. 
Deeper than that, you've got these yearnings, longings. So Pascal talks about uh, the heart has its reasons, kind of the longing for justice, for hope, for beauty, for a satisfying story, uh, those kind of things. I think they're evidence of people needing to look up. And Charles Taylor talks about we're kind of in uh, a stadium and they've shut the roof. But, but the Bible's view on what you do if you don't look up to the true and living God, unfortunately, is you will look up to um, false gods, to idols. And the basic uh, critique in the Bible, I think it really sticks, is that false gods are gods that fail, but they just don't deliver on their promises. So uh, one more example of the need to look up. In the year 2000, Sydney, which is one of the first places because of the time zones to celebrate the new millennium, uh, they had uh, on their Harbour Bridge the word eternity. And it's because of this backstory, it's a fascinating backstory, a illiterate alcoholic was converted in a church in Sydney back in the 1930s. And uh, um, this, the text was that enigmatic text in Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in our hearts. So he, he became a Christian and he wanted to preach. So he just wrote eternity all around the sidewalks early in the mornings in chalk for decades, like tens of thousands of times. And so what Sydney did is they put in his handwriting the word eternity. No one complained. I mean, if we don't look up and if our lives are just material, then they should have written oblivion on the harbour. But, but eternity has struck a chord with people. I think it still does today. So how does that relate to the social self, the, the fact we're social animals? It's what I talked about earlier. It's this idea that we're known intimately and personally by God. It's all over the Bible when you look for it. Our names are known to God. They're written in the book of life. Um, uh, God knows us up close is what it says in the Psalms. And uh, at the last judgment, the kind of uh, grave speech in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus says to those uh, who are not saved, I never knew you. And Paul says in Galatians 4, at one time you didn't know God, now you do know God, or rather you're known by God. And, and that ends up being so helpful, I think, uh, for how we think about our lives and our identities. Um, just one more example. So Jesus sends out the uh, 70 on mission in, in Luke, I think it's Luke 10, and they come back and, and Jesus said, well, how'd you go, fellas? And uh, uh, he says, well, well, and they say, oh, it's fantastic. We had uh, healed the sick and we, we, we saw people's sins forgiven. And he says, yeah, I, I saw Satan fall from heaven. You really are a bunch of high flyers, but don't rejoice in, in the fact of your achievements. Rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So that, that, that bedrock of my identity is no matter what happens in my life, good things or bad things, I'm still known by God as his child. And that's the identity that will then inform all these other aspects of my identity, the kind of father, the kind of worker, the kind of friend, the kind of husband I'll be, hopefully, is to align with uh, that identity. So, in fact, I, I really like some of the stuff with expressive individualism. You do you, be true to yourself. I say, yeah, you do the real you, the true you, the one that's known in Christ. And uh, be, be true to your new identity in Christ. That's, that's Paul's strategy for moral renewal. Put on the new self. <laughs> you know, I, 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 um, they're fresh on my mind. 
But as you were speaking, I was reminded of um, uh, the Song of Solomon 6, verses 8 to 10, because, and they're all fresh on my mind because I've been reading Walter Moberly's chapter on the, on the Shema in his Old Testament theology, and it's this great discussion in which he talks about what the meaning of, what exactly is going on with the word one here, and he kind of, he whisks us to Song of Solomon 6. Um, there are, and I, I you know, 60, uh, 60 concubines, 80 queens, virgins without number, uh, but my love is my only one, the only one of her mother, and so on. And just this, um, it's, it's sort of the wonderful flip side of Deuteronomy 6.4, really, you know, the, of, uh, of the Lord being one is that he looks, and, and, and therefore, sorry, the flip side of Deuteronomy 6.5, the command to love him with all we've got, is this we love because he first has loved us. Um, mm. it, you're right. It's so wonderful, and it's all over Scripture. Um so I'm, I'm going to keep us moving along here. I've only got a couple more questions. I've just got my eye on the, on the clock. In addition to being social animals, this is a lot of fun. In addition to being social animals, um, Brian, you say we are also storied uh, beings, right? We, we, we live along the grains of narratives that we've inherited. And you identify two broad narratives at work in Western culture, secular materialism on the one hand, social justice on the other. And, um, you know, both provide frameworks that allow us to view our lives in narrative form. They give us all the, the elements good stories have. They help us to identify a problem, to orient our lives with reference to, you know, some past turning point, to, to make sense of some present struggle, and then finally to determine what it is that we're hoping for. So how, how do we find ourselves being narratively formed today? I suppose m- maybe I'm asking a question I've, I've just explained, but, you know, what, what's, what story is on offer and what story does the Christian faith offer, um, which which might intersect with these kind of secular narratives or take them up and fulfill them in some way? I'm curious to see how, how you look at this whole question. Yes, no, it's a great question again. And um, I think the first thing to say is that um, uh, we, we do live in these narratives whether we realise it or not. And and the problem, of course, is much of it's subconscious. But nonetheless, there are these defining moments in the past. There's a worldview is another way of talking about these sorts of things and and a kind of destiny and goal, a struggle in the present. They're they're, they're compelling stories. So secular materialism um, has different versions. So you've got the sexual revolution, which sees... uh, um, the, the ultimate goal in life is me to express my um, sexuality and be completely fulfilled sexually. But consumerism is probably the biggest one that affects us all. The idea that the good life is, is about material improvement and uh, um, um, having a life of ease and comfort. Um, so I, I think the problem with that view of the world is that it, it's kind of looking at the world through rose-coloured glasses. It ignores the fact of human uh, wickedness and evil, which is which is true of all of us. So the problem with the secular materialist narrative is we just need education and technology, and we're just going to have the perfect society, and, and Nirvana will arrive. And and sadly, human history says, oh, I'm sorry, but <laughs> not going to happen. So. Um, But the other story is much more difficult to deal with. Social justice basically says that discrimination and prejudice are what's wrong with the world. And there are, of course, defining moments in the past where that was the case and and things progress. 
And if we can just rid the world of those two things, and there's a great attempts to do exactly that, then, then we'll arrive at a much better place. Um, the problem with that view is that it, it's naive to think that the only problems of the world are discrimination and prejudice. And this notion that there are only three kinds of people, the oppressed, um, their loyal allies, and the oppressors, and if we just get rid of or educate, change the oppressors, the world will change for good. It's like looking at the world through very thick lenses with blinkers. So you ignore everything else, the kind of evil which is true of all human beings potentially. So what does the Bible do? Well, I think it does address the real needs that those stories um, pinpoint. So, so the, the idea of wanting a fulfilled and satisfying life is that that's a biblical idea. And, and we are fulfilled in Christ. Uh, when, when we uh, stop drinking at broken cisterns and uh, drink the water of life. And, and the idea that the world needs to be put right and injustices addressed, of course, that, that, that ties in so closely with Christian discipleship. But to think we can achieve that in the present um, without any other help and, and this kind of naive approach to it, it, it's just not working. It's leading to a more divided and cantankerous society um, and uh, um, it, it, it doesn't actually lift people out of their oppressed states. So the Christian story has a way of dealing with these things, recognising the, uh, the, uh, um, the issues they're addressing as legitimate, but, but it, it has a way of uh, being, having the individuals in that story much more self-aware, looking outside themselves for their adequacy and resources, working together in a community that can address injustice and help people to find fulfilment in life. Now, having said all that, of course, there are terrible stories of abuse within the church. We have to acknowledge that. Uh, one of my friends, John Dixon, has a book called Bullies and Saints. You know, the church is far worse and much better than you ever imagined. My, my experience in church is very positive. Yeah, I founded the place where those uh, uh, close relationships have been um, exercised to such an extent that people are lifted up and uh, edified and strengthened in their lives. They serve each other, other, each other in love, and it's an extraordinarily inclusive uh, environment. Sadly, that's not always the case. But nonetheless, the resources are there for us to live a story that will eventually um, culminate in, in the return of Christ and the world will be put to right. And uh, if you want to talk about uh, being on the right side of history, that's the, that's the place to be. That segues perfectly in, into, the, uh, into my last question, which really has to do with counter-catechesis, I suppose you might call it. I'd love if we could kind of apply this discussion directly uh, to listeners to help listeners trace some implications, specifically those listeners who have some responsibility for shaping others in the faith. So this could mean, you know, parents with responsibility for kids, could mean small group leaders or, or, or pastors with responsibility for shaping the faith of the congregation. So, um, okay, so you, here's the question. You've said that expressive individualism boils down to uh, the twin assertions. I'm, I'm thinking the book, I'm not sure if you've said in our conversation, um, in quite these terms, but that number one, to be ourselves, we have to find ourselves. And that number two, you know, we all, we ultimately belong solely to ourselves. We, we have talked around both of those concepts, right? 
Now, if these are the case for expressive individualism, then expressive individualism seems diametrically opposed to the gospel, even though there are good things, you know, there are things that we want to affirm about it when, when seen in the true light of the gospel. Now, my question is, how do you think that Christian leaders, and this could, again, someone in the household or somebody in the household of the church, can counter-catechize our, our people well? What is an effective catechesis look like? And it's a big question, I know. So how might we start to think about a kind of counter-catechesis that can inoculate our people? It's a huge challenge, of course. And I think um, a counter-catechesis is exactly right. I mean, Paul talks about if you want to have your behavior transformed, you you have to have your mind renewed. So, uh, I mean, jokingly, I could say you need to come to Ridley College in Melbourne and and buy my book. But uh, it's much... (laughs) That, that that that's just silly but but it's not just about learning stuff it's about recognizing the the world in which we live and resisting uh, being squeezed into its mold it's very difficult of course um, but the first thing is to recognize that Christian faith does present a counterculture and um, there are some things about the culture we affirm but others we 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 resist and want to critique. I mean, what, one encouragement is to say that, uh, as I mentioned just briefly earlier, many of the things we do in and as church are exactly this. You get baptised, you attend the family gatherings. I mean, the Lord's Prayer is an extraordinary um, kind of protest literature um, against expressive individualism. Our Father in heaven, it starts with. I mean, it, it, I've written a kind of satirical uh, version of the Lord's Prayer in the book, uh, which uh, <laughs> our essence within and uh, the kind of uh, living for my kingdom, not God's kingdom. It's all, it's all, the Lord's Prayer, interestingly, is is in the plural, isn't it? Uh, forgive us our trespasses. And uh, you, you get a story there that um, helps to frame our lives. Um, saying the creed, us, us Anglicans <laughs> and, and other Christians around the world have, have for centuries, of course, said, said the creed. And what we do when we say the creed is to say, this is the story I belong to. This is the story I'm living. I'm not in the materialist story. I, I'm not thinking um, the, the person who dies with the most toys um, wins. Uh, I'm living a different story. And uh, that story is framed beautifully by the creed. The, the other thing we've got to do, of course, is to live the gospel, uh, to, as I've talked about earlier, to put on the new self. One thing to do there is is to look at those examples of people staying on script, if you like, not losing the plot. If you want to extend the metaphor uh, of the Christian life, and and there are there are dozens when you think about it. I, I'm encouraged um, not just about the the well-known Christian leaders who are faithful, but just my friends who, for example, Bill, who has a neighbour who's trying to. Um, uh, stop him with his development on his uh, redeveloping his house and has held things up for a couple of years. And then the, the neighbor's son comes, knocks on Bill's door and says, hey, Bill, I've got some science work, homework from university, my, my college science class I'm not very good at. And Bill, Bill's an, uh, an engineer. And uh, Bill says, yeah, sure, come on in. Now, why is Bill doing that? Why, why, why does he forgive those who oppose him and he doesn't even think about it. It's not because he's obeying a rule. It's because he's staying on script. The story of Jesus has so framed and formed his identity 
um, that uh, acting in that way becomes uh, almost instinctive. So look, I'm, I'm kind of pessimistic and optimistic about expressive individualism. You think, how on earth are we going to oppose it when it's just everywhere, it's the air we breathe? But I, I do think uh, the, the Christian faith uh, has resources and the church itself, especially when we have intimate personal relationships, bearing each other's burdens, carrying our own burdens in the church. I mean, that, that's the ultimate solution um, to uh, resisting um, the, the unhelpful approach to identity which it espouses. Brian, I think that's a, a great word to end on. Thank you so much, dear brother, for, for coming on. It's been a delight to chat. Yeah, thanks, Sam. It, it's been a privilege and a joy too for me. Well, folks, if you've if you've enjoyed listening, please do subscribe to the podcast or, or leave a favorable review wherever you may be listening. Uh, if this conversation has been helpful for you, I encourage you to pick up a copy of Brian's book with Crossway, How to Find Yourself, uh, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer. Again, Brian Rosner, a link to the book can be found in the episode notes. Uh, for those keen to learn more about the gospel and its relevance for Christian discipleship in contemporary society or to explore theological training for gospel ministry in the Anglican tradition, visit us uh, at uh, at our Ridley, www.ridleyinstitute.com. Uh, we've got just one final episode of the podcast before breaking for summer, one final edition of the new Parker Society, uh, for which I will be rejoined by uh, Jake Griesel from uh, George Whitfield and Alice Solio Evans, uh, our friend in England. Do join us again for that. Thanks for spending this time with us. As ever, I'm Sam Forniker, and you've been listening to the Ridley Institute Podcast.